Welcome to Get Up In The Cool, old time music with Cameron DeWitt and friends. It's the third week of Get Up In The Cool month. I saved some very special interviews, hoping you'll be moved to support the show. This week's friend is songwriter, old time musician, and banjoist Kaya Cater. We recorded this last month over Skype and I recorded my musical parts afterwards. Shout out to Get Up In The Cool's newest Patreon supporter, Sean Bender. Thank you, Sean, it means a lot. Get Up In The Cool is funded by a small percentage of dedicated listeners like Sean. On an average month, the show gets over 30,000 downloads, and I typically have 100 people at any given time who help fund the show. Get Up In The Cool could really use a higher percentage of its listeners chipping in. It takes a lot of time and energy and money to make the show, and I can't do it alone. And of course, you'll be rewarded for chipping in. There are lots of reward tiers, but this week I want to tell you about the Get Up In The Cool Tune Archive. For $8 an episode, you'll get to download the ever-expanding archive right now. It has about 60 hours of music, all tagged into albums for your listening convenience, separated from the dialogue, and it grows every week. I like to think that the people who fund the show at this level are not just funding Get Up In The Cool, but the fastest growing archive of modern old-time music recordings. So go now while you're listening to this to patreon.com slash getupinthecool, linked in the show notes on your podcast app, and choose a support level that you can sustain, because small sustaining donations are much more helpful than large short-term donations. Thank you for funding the show. Stick around afterwards, and I'll tell you how to keep up with Kaya Cater. But first, here's our interview and jam. Enjoy. Some skin to be a home. Sin 
So great i was literally just <laughs> listening to you play that today i was listening to nine pin today oh awesome kaya cater welcome to get up in the cool thank you so much cameron the, the, the official thing first <laughs> uh okay uh back to nerding out it that's such a awesome song is that um like sort of referencing 44 gun possibly I, I, I heard some like floating verses that i that i recognize like but that's your original song, right? No, it's not. So, Oh, my goodness. Okay. okay, so this is a traditional... I learned this one from Jerry Milnes, mm. who um, some listeners might know. He was uh, the sort of like folk archivist, folklorist at um, the Augusta Heritage Center for like many, many years. Mm. Um, he's a very kind nice man with a really sick mustache um and he's also important (laughs) important. um and he's also uh yeah he's just like a a great person and and i went to school at davis and elkins college where augusta heritage center is located and uh this was one of the very first tunes that jerry taught me because he was my teacher for a few years um he taught us actually the the DNA string band. We we were all kind of like under his tutelage, um, and that song he told us that it comes from Mingo County, which is like all the way at the southern part of the state that borders up against Kentucky. And I don't know. I always loved it. Like, um, yeah, I just I don't know. It not to be corny, but it struck a chord in me. It feels just kind of self-pitying which uh-huh. is that's <laughs> like, a whole mood you know like this this farmer basically in the song this farmer is just bummed out because this girl that he loves little pink um she she won't marry him because uh no, he's basically not like a, a a a person that's working on the railroad yeah. Um, and so he's kind of old world to her and, hmm. you know, and he's just like very butthurt and resentful <laughs> and like never really gets over it. But then also there are these random verses. I agree with you that that kind of cut through that story that yeah. are just standalone verses. Fifth, oh, yeah. Fifteen cents is all the money I've gotten. A dollar is all I crave. Fifteen cents and some old morphine to take me to my lonesome grave. Yeah those ones are kind of 
No one ever said old time music had to be coherent. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Just trancy. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I guess for some reason I had thought that it that you had wrote written it because the phrase little pink, I've just never heard that before in traditional music, and it felt like it felt poetic in a way that I thought was more more modern. And I guess I'm always like surprised when I hear language that doesn't feel like it fits in my like very limited concept of culture in old time music, like when it was originally developed, you know, like mm-hmm. little things like, you know, like the tune Mike in the wilderness. Like, I'm like, oh yeah, I guess people were calling people named Michael Mike back then. I guess that makes sense. But <laughs> like, it doesn't feel right in like an old time tune. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. Little That's pink. Huh. <laughs> Mike in the well, wilderness. I've never heard that tune it's a great tune. I'm going to go listen to it. <laughs> Mike, he's in the wilderness. Yeah, Mike, that's where he is. That's what the tune would have us believe. <laughs> well, let's, let's go back to the beginning. When did you first start playing banjo? So, so I'm originally from Montreal, Quebec, and like uh, Canada, mostly like no, completely born and raised. I had like a relatively musical family, so but they were very into like sort of like sixties, late sixties folk stuff. So like Joni Mitchell and like Nitty Gritty Dirt Band and yeah. Neil Young and like great stuff. Um, but not really aware of old time. And um and my mom actually ended up running a few folk festivals. Uh, first mm. the Ottawa Folk Festival and then the Winnipeg Folk Festival. And in Canada, there's this guy named Mitch Podolik who's like pretty well known. Um, he's like a Trotskyite. Or he he was, he passed away. Um, but he was like a Trotskyite communist. Um, huh. uh, and he he just loved to like like cook barbecue and teach people the banjo those were like his two i don't know his two loves in life i guess yeah and his son people might know his son leonard leonard padalik who's a clawhammer banjo player a, a really great one um who played in the that band the ducks um, oh my goodness yeah i i saw them once at um it was a some folk festival in maine yeah yeah, yeah they were like nominated for a Grammy. I mean, they were like big on the kind of like folk touring circuit. Um, but yeah, so so Mitch Leonard's dad was he he founded the Winnipeg Folk Festival, and so he was a consultant on like a lot of folk festivals getting started, and and mm. that's how he and my mom became colleagues. And he must have been like in his early sixties by the time I met him, um, and I was like eleven or twelve. And I had been given a banjo um, by this this like this guy who I, I had seen I had seen him play, and he like I guess he noticed that I was like super into what he was playing, so he like had an extra banjo, and so he was like, "Here, like take it, and if you like it, keep playing." And so I had a banjo in my closet, and Mitch had like heard about it, and so he came up and and basically introduced himself. And I remember feeling like he was just like a big kid, like he had never really grown up. 
and um and he was like yeah like pull out your banjo like i'm gonna give you a lesson and so i was like okay i didn't have anything better to do great (laughs) yeah i know i was like okay but it was cool because um that was the first time i saw Clawhammer like ever played um and he could only like he, he wasn't very prolific like he could he could play groundhog he taught me groundhog in g and um and i was like okay this is cool and then like put the banjo down again for like eight months and didn't play so for context um, how old were you at the time i was 11 i think okay yeah what what kind of music were you into at the time oh um uh, my if mom any. my mom had given me like a fuji's record great so i was really so into that and like learning everything on that i was really into that movie save the last dance uh-huh <laughs> um with julia styles yeah um, yeah and so i was listening to that a lot um so like and my dad was sending me cds so really like it was um like a lot of folk music and then i was playing classical cello at the time so mm. also some some like cello sweet stuff and then um just like a lot of hip-hop and r&b yeah. Great. So, so, like, so like this banjo lesson playing Groundhog, like maybe some of what you had heard, part of your paradigm related to that, but mostly you're just rewatching Save the Last Dance <laughs> and listening <laughs> to the soundtrack. Great. <laughs> yeah, I think it felt it felt just very alien. Not yeah. totally alien, but I was just like, I don't, I don't know this type of music yeah you know i think the closest i could sort of understand it was like hearing gillian welch or like alison krauss like you know but even then alison krauss was pretty new grass um so yeah so you put the banjo away for how long i'm I'm almost a year i want to say a long time um and then i picked it up again and something just you know, kind of changed. I guess I got to know Mitch a little more and he went from this like strange apparition on like <laughs> one weekend to like someone who like we talked a bunch about just like random stuff. And um, he was, he always, I remember he always treated me like, I don't know, like he, he saw me as a person, even though he would, even though he kind of forced a banjo lesson on me. Uh-huh. Like, still, it was like we were friends. Um, yeah. And yeah, and, and actually the first like connection with uh, like old time culture that I had was I went to Swananoa, the Swananoa gathering. And that's where I was like, okay, I can see the context of like yeah. what this, how this exists, like in the mountains, like, yeah. like the history behind it, which I had little to none of before so so your access point then was just like essentially like a well-meaning like boomer mansplainer (laughs) who is just (laughs) sort of like inserted himself in your life but then for some reason it stuck because uh of his like redeeming qualities as well (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i wouldn't say i wouldn't say definitely boomer but but i think Compared to the other people in my life, I mean, at the time I was feeling really isolated. Like I was living mm. in a really, just such a white town in Quebec, 
and my mom had remarried and she'd remarried this this like white guy who like my who i mean was i was told was my stepfather but like mm. who we just like did not connect on any level yeah. and so is your I think, mom is your mom white she is yeah 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 and my dad was like i mean my dad's a whole other story but he was living um in vancouver on the west coast at the time and so yeah it was just like felt so yeah fucking like i don't know if i can square here but i felt yes. so really out of place <laughs> so <laughs> out of place and and i think like really the lessons were fine i didn't really care but as soon as i got to swananoa i yeah. felt like i mean still there were like no <clears throat> black people but it still felt like okay this is like a community where yeah i can bond with people based on this like shared interest yeah in this instrument you know yeah. yeah yeah that's key you know. <laughs> that is yeah why we're all here yeah yeah that's great I've, I've had a lot of similar experiences with people saying oh i'm going to mentor you now and then me being like okay and then uh i just sort of, it just sort of happens to me and then uh i kind of put it together later and i'm like oh this is why you're doing this okay thanks yeah so it's it's a it's an interesting role um, <laughs> that like it the, is yeah the it requires a lot of community yeah <laughs> <laughs> that they do sometimes yeah yeah I, I that that same thing has happened to me a few times uh, happened to me a few times after that with like old white dudes but it like yeah. did not work out where sure. I was like get a wit like I you know um but yeah I think with Mitch like. Yeah. Yeah, it just like I, it happened at the right time, and he was yeah. also like a a cool dude, and yeah, you know, not as much of a of a dickhead as <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as like other other people who shall remain unnamed. But yeah, I I remember I was at this jam in Philly, and uh, I'm I'm gonna throw some. Uh, I'm not gonna name any names. But I'm going to throw a few like white boomers in the Philly jams under the bus and just know <laughs> that I also love you. And I'm really grateful for like your mentorship in my life. There is a young fiddler uh, woman um, around my age who um, came to the jam with a banjo that was unset up. But uh, she was she was dating Dirk Powell at the time. And she had his banjo and she was and she was like in the corner setting it up uh, so that she could join the jam. And, uh, she's one of the most like capable musicians I've ever met. And, uh, all of these men were just like kind of hovering around her and saying, Oh, do this, do this, do this. And like telling her how to set up her banjo. And she just said, I have too many banjo dads around me right now. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, wow, that, that little phrase banjo dads. And I was just like, that is like a powerful idea. And then I just started seeing them everywhere. And like, you know, some of them are just really sweet and well-meaning. And some of them are just like, yeah, like overbearing fathers. And uh, so Andrew I feel dads, that. <laughs> that is great. I, yeah, I feel like, I mean, first of all, I, I do like talking to people after shows. I don't want to scare people away from talking to me after shows. However, with coronavirus, I, I recently did, like, my first outdoor socially distanced show. And, of course, you know, 
I think it might be the death knell of the CD table because yeah. like, yeah, y- you know, usually you have people that come up to you with like beer breath and yeah. like you sign a CD and then they linger, you know. Um, but now, you know, it, it, at this show anyway, um, people just ordered like they texted their order if they wanted like vinyl or cd and it was brought to their table and i just like went backstage after the show and i i like it's funny because i'm like you know i but it's it's kind of sad because i i think the cd table is where i feel the most or the most concentrated amount of anxiety is Mm. because i i really don't know what what people are what's going to come out of people's mouths and i and i think i share that with like quite a few performers um if you know like women are pocs or whatever where like you really don't know if someone is just gonna be cool like a cool banjo dad or like yeah or just like totally drop some strange thing on you that you then have to like interact with yeah, and um, you have to decide how much emotional labor you're going to do, and yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or recently, you know, when I started talking about racism on stage and Black Lives Matter, and, like, people would have mm. so much guilt, too, and so they, like, older people would come up to me with, like, a lot of guilt, and yeah, it's just, like, it's a lot to put, to put to hover and, <laughs> and put on people, like, who are just trying to live their life. yeah. I would love to ask you some more kind of like identity, like public, private, like like those boundary things. More questions about that, but maybe we should do another tune first. Yeah, sure. Uh, this is a tune that <clears throat> this is a tune that I learned from Hillary Burhans. Um, Aw. Yeah. Uh, this Aww. is called. <laughs> um, the best to do it. Um, this is called Valley Forge. Yeah. Thank you. 
Oh, man. I love that tune. <laughs> Me too. How do you know Hillary? So I know Hillary uh, because she was, um, she taught at Augusta in 2012. Oh, yeah. And uh, I took her class. I think I also took her class at Swan and Noah. Um, I just really like her, her whole state of being. I think she's really cool. And at that time, also, like, I wasn't, there were, like, very few women banjo teachers. And, um, I mean, probably still are, but I don't know. Um, but, yeah, and so whenever she offered a class, I was like, hell yes. Um, yeah. And she also, she always taught really cool tunes and was, like, very laid back. Yeah. I feel like Hillary has a lot of that, uh, a lot of the banjo dad energy, but you know that it's coming from an honest place because it's not, like... <laughs> <laughs> it's good, you know yeah uh <laughs> it's just very trustworthy and she's like so hospitable and her banjo playing is incredible yeah 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 and and also she's she like runs a restaurant yeah. like i don't know she just like gets it done yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so you're talking about uh people coming up to you <laughs> after shows you you mentioned briefly that you recently started talking about black lives matter like Mm -hmm. with your music and talking about political stuff with your music how how recently is that and 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 why and how are you approaching that with your music yeah so i guess recently i mean 2016 so when i left school I left school in 2016 and started playing, like started touring more consistently. And prior to that, I there's a song on Nine Pin uh, called "Rising Down," which is it's very my favorite one. Oh, awesome! Yeah, um, thanks. Yeah, it's a it's very just direct, in my opinion, uh, directly about police uh, brutality and police killings of Black people. Um, and that was because in, in 2015, I mean, like, I remember going home for Thanksgiving break, American Thanksgiving break, and, um, Tamir Rice had just been killed. Yeah. Um, and, and I was doing an independent study at the time with, with my, my professor and actual consensual mentor, Lori Go. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, she was like my only black professor and mm. she taught me like a lot about just like how to walk in the world and standing up for for um, mm. just the truth, really. And like n- like the unadorned truth. Um, and so I was studying with her and uh, with my friend, Catherine Maynard, um, who is a tap dancer. And, um, and I wrote, I remember writing Rising Down and taking it to them. Mm. Uh, and, you know, Laurie was like, yeah, that's it. And so she choreographed this, like, West African dance that oh, we wow. did. And then I played the banjo and Catherine, like, would tap. And it was just, like, a mix of, like, drumming <clears throat> and, like, music and and at the end, we sort of, like, come together and we, like, put our fists up. And then behind us is, like, a there, there's usually this, like, screen during performances that just said, I can't breathe. Because that was, like, 
after Eric Garner's death. Yeah. And um and really like I think it it was good for me to be able to like find my my voice that way in college because we were really protected. Like I felt really protected. Like people were angry about it, but like mm. I was just like, well, I'm paying money to go to this school and like yeah. no one's, you know, like I just <laughs> I I just remember feeling like very free to be expressive. And then when I took the song out on the road, oh, I don't know. It I I usually had a long lead up to it and I and I was just like you you know black like black lives matter is not a controversial statement and nor should it be yeah. but like in 2015 like black students were getting suspended from school from high schools for writing black lives matter like or like posting posters of like black lives matter so yeah it was a different time yeah <laughs> i feel old saying that but yeah um yeah and it, and then it eventually got really exhausting because i've had a lot of anxiety I still do have a lot of anxiety playing in front of white audiences and then also trying, you know, trying to say black lives matter to an audience also feels like trying to explain why your life and the the lives of your family members matter. Like it feels so raw and I just, I was like, I can't keep up this pace. And so I stopped talking about it for a while and I just decided to write, I wrote grenades, um, Mm as a way to just like incorporate this idea of like black life and black joy and Mm. like the attempt to like snuff that out. Like I was just like, I'm just going to write a whole record about it so that like, it's not like a time in the set where like white people are like, Oh, we're going to get spanked now. Like, Oh my God. Yeah. You know what (laughs) I mean? Like, and then you're just like, Oh fuck. Like I'm just so exhausted. And like, I barely have energy to like, take care of myself you know yeah so that that's been my like evolution and now i just i don't know i mean we're in we're just in a we're in another place right now where i mean i guess public approval for black lives matter has gone up a lot however systemically i feel quite pessimistic about whether things will really change so (sighs) the the weird like um white guilt kink stuff uh (laughs) that you (laughs) that you referred to uh i'm i haven't really heard anybody talk about this explicitly but is there i've heard a lot about black artists feeling like they have to do a lot of sort of emotional labor to to deal with, with 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 white folks who have some underdeveloped or bad ideas about these kinds of things and just fielding a lot of that stuff. But I haven't necessarily heard <laughs> much about the the flip side. Is is there like an emotional labor element to having to listen to over eager like white audience members or fans of your music like is that mm. also challenging and how yes thank you for asking that and for opening up the the door to that conversation um i ask as an over eager like white person 
I just want you to know that I'm just so supportive and I got all the signs on my lawn. <laughs> In this house, we believe. <laughs> yeah. Um, no. Um, American flag. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, I find it's like it's two. So it's two, two sides of the same coin. One being, oh, my God, I'm so bad. Yeah. Which is like. Which is really just like white or white adjacent fragility where where a person is just like, I'm so sorry. Like, yeah. I'm so sorry for, for what's happening to you. And like, yeah. oh, my God, like, I, I can't believe that you live like this. Like, and it's really it's I call it a soap opera because it's just like there's nothing you can do to respond to that. Like, you're just kind of like, yeah, well, welcome to the. Welcome to the world. I don't know. Like, the, welcome it's, to my it's, base level of you know, right? Experience. Like, yeah, yeah, and and it's just it's just so centered on uh, the the person's emotions and how they're like how they're feeling discovering this thing about their country, and it's like is very. It just y- there's no entry point there, and then so there's yeah. I'm so bad, and then there's also the I'm so good, which is like. Like just trying to show how like down for the cause you are, but but to an exhausting point where like I think it can make the person you're talking to, especially if they're like a POC, like a black person, like feel really strange, Uh, like just like a receptacle to like tell you how good you are and how good you've done, yeah, um, how much good you've done, and so I find both are just like um, just like two sides of like kind of like white fragility and i i often feel like when i encounter each i feel really drained because i now have to engage with like this white person on their own life and 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 they often want me to absolve them yeah like Ugh. either way to absolve them and i i i don't know i can't Ew. do that like i just can't do that like it's 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 really strange and like, I just wonder if it's, like, rooted in, like, these, like, deep kind of, like, Christianity-related things where, like, you know, like, when you eat food that you're not supposed to eat, you say, like, oh, I'm being so bad. Or, like, yeah. I've been so good. Like, like very, very much, like, these, like, strange ways that we were, like, able to, like, understand ourselves that are really, that are really unhelpful. Um, and the truth is like, you know, I th- I think just getting comfortable with like saying like, oh, yeah, I have a shitload of privilege or like, yeah, I've, I've done some racist shit in my life or like I live in yeah. a, I live in a racist system and like I benefit from it or like here are the ways I do and here are the ways I don't. And like, you know, it's just, it's like just getting comfortable. I think with the language is really what I want people to do, but it's, it's tough to be very honest about that with people because yeah yeah (laughs) you know it's like i don't know if people really want to hear that all that much i think they want to they like want to read white fragility by robin d'angelo and then like have a verdict on what they are you know sure i i (laughs) i don't know i'm saying a lot of things (laughs) <laughs> I, I've heard no. I, I'm so grateful for you saying these things. I've heard, I haven't read that book, but I've heard a lot of criticism of that book for having a lot of spank me energy. Is that 
Is that the is that big true? spank like, me energy? Yeah, <laughs> that's. I really appreciate what you're saying about the like Christianity aspect, uh, because even though I think a lot of those cultural things have worked their way into the the mainstream culture, even if people aren't regularly going to church, but the there's this like toxic cycle of um, doing a bad thing and then getting forgiven. Um, that's kind of abusive, <laughs> like an abusive cycle, like power dynamic that, um, keeps people going to church. And, uh, I, I don't know if I had ever put like, like connected that with what you're saying about like white people wanting to be absolved because that's the pattern they're used to. It's like, I did a bad thing. I asked, and, and then I know that if I ask for forgiveness, I will get it. And then they're so upset when they don't get forgiveness in the way that they understand. And then they get really mad. And then it's like, oh, you're actually not sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. The anger is real. Yeah. 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 The rage is real. <laughs> Shoot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I... I, I I'm still kind of figuring it out myself and... I mean, no shade, no shade to like white people out there who are like, you know, who start with white fragility, you know, or who who need somewhere to start. And sure, that's great. Like, welcome, like, like I always say, like, welcome to the cause, like, welcome to the fight. Um, however, yeah, I I just, uh, I don't know, I don't know, I I I, I want more reading and i want more sort of like interrogation of how how you're trying to exist in in like the new reality of of now understanding now understanding now being like introduced to the fact that the world was not as you thought it was yeah you know um yeah i'm mm. i'm still as you can tell i'm still kind of like figuring out my thoughts on that but yeah i i want people to read like Ibrahim Ken X Candy and you know read like the how the how to be anti racist yeah, yeah yeah um you know like look at like like read books like where there are no like no white people in them or like white people are minor characters because like we've had to read books like little house on the prairie and uh-huh. <laughs> harriet the spy and like see all these heroines who don't look like us and then have had like tried to like you know like kind of like look at all these like white characters and say like oh you know wh- white girls are smart white girls are desired you know yeah. and and so it's just so insidious and i feel like it's a, it's just like just acknowledge that it's going to be a lifelong thing and like be really be okay with that like be like yeah it's going to be a lifelong thing for me to be reading and learning and like talking learning how to even like learning how to even start to talk about race i find is like a really big hurdle for a lot of people like you and i are talking about it but like it can be really uncomfortable and yeah like even having discussions like Anyway, it's, I'm thinking about this a lot, but. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is really hard. And I think you have to opt into discomfort and that's the main sort of stumbling block. It's just like, okay, I'm going to have an uncomfortable experience on purpose. Like we, you know, are taught in our, in our culture 
at large to avoid that as much as possible. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know that uh, you were talking about like uh, like representation in in media and something that I've had to like unlearn as a, as a white person is this is the other side of the coin is every single thing that I've seen is has told me that I am the hero in every story. And for one, that's, that's bad because if I think that then I'm getting in the way of actual other people who need to be the hero sometimes a lot of the time. And two, that's way too much pressure for me. I don't want to be the fucking hero all the time. Like, <laughs> like I want to be like a sidekick or like a, an extra or like, <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of like white people are like, they feel so empowered and that's why they're taking up so much space because they've been like, got all these messages that they have so much agency all the time to like, and that like they, their voice is the most powerful. And uh, I think, I think it can be kind of nice to like let go of a little bit of that responsibility because then you get to like actually watch other people thrive and sometimes they're better at certain things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, yeah. wouldn't that be nice to let go a little bit of? Yeah. <laughs> Dear, <I> listeners. Mean... <laughs> <laughs> Dear listeners. Dear listeners. Dear um, listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, it's, I mean, it's like absolutely messed up how long it took. I mean, I see, you know, I, I, I still, I feel like I don't really see the, the change in the carceral system and, and that'll yeah. take a long, that'll take many years. However, um, I do see the change in, you know, like in media. Mm-hmm. Um, like I see a lot more like black opinion writers in the times I, you know, I just like, I see, I've been hired myself for like, yeah. A more writing work. I I write. Um, I interview artists and and write stuff up for the bluegrass situation right now. Um, yeah. And so that's that's cool because it's like I feel like once people actually white people actually acknowledge like oh like this we have a very narrow pers- like band of perspectives in our publications or whatever it may be, I feel like it can only make your publications stronger. Yeah. You know, if you're like, okay, who else can we ask about what they think about this? Or who else has experience writing about this? Or who else would even like experience writing about this and has been like waiting and writing it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm hoping that'll just make us less dumb. <laughs> as, a, as a culture oh wouldn't wouldn't that be lovely yeah uh yeah. let's let's do another tune okay what do you want to play next i am going to play uh a song called undone in sorrow by mm. uh ola Bellreed. yes <laughs> the best our queen and, you, and and you're doing this even though everything's just super great and yeah, life is wonderful. Yeah, it's and just a very I hypothetical can't relate song. in any way to this song. <laughs> cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Here we go. <laughs> Thank you. 
She's the best. Um, I love that she, and honestly, a lot of the other like older ballad singers too. They just seem to have no issue with uh, singing from the opposite gender. And like as yeah. a queer person, I like really, really appreciate that. And it makes yeah. me feel really comfortable singing "Oh the Bells" songs from uh, from a woman's perspective or a girl's perspective, mm-hmm. and because I'm like. Yeah, she's cool with that. And I know that she just like hung out with lesbians all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Ah, so cool. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I, I feel like I went way too long uh, without knowing that High on a Mountain was her song. You know, like, I, uh, yeah, it was just like played by so many bluegrass dudes. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is just a tr- traditional song. Yeah. And yeah, discovering her was like, wait, <laughs> yeah, she just like wrote all these like amazing songs, and like not enough people talk about that. Yep, yeah, <laughs> she's the best. <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to just pivot to that. I loved your version of it as well. <laughs> like whatever no. you're Ola Bell, it just makes me think about how much I love Ola Bell Reed. But uh, lovely playing. Oh, thank you. Wait, so. Who who are your other? Um, you've mentioned a couple mentors, consensual and non-consensual, uh, <laughs> like to varying degrees. But um, who who have you like? How have you developed your banjo playing style? Ooh, um, 
I was I was really hard into the tunes uh, as a, as a teen. Um, I studied with a Daniel Kulak in Winnipeg. Um, he's a great great banjo player, and he has these albums called like claw claw hammering your way to the top or it's just like like very like i don't know he's just like he's fun and he was a fun promising success (laughs) with banjo cool exactly (laughs) frailing to succeed was another one (laughs) really (laughs) yeah this is so funny um but yeah um badly i don't know i i feel like a little bit of a uh, a chameleon because um, I sort of came, I feel like I came into old time kind of through this side door like a lot of us just like not born into yeah. the tradition um, and then was like really interested in songwriting as well yeah. um, and so I think uh, I don't know I, I think I've sort of like uh, just like taken a lot of time to sort of find my place and, um, and, you know, being in college was great for that. Going to school with Scotty Leach, who is our mutual friend, who we've talked a lot about. Um, that, that was cool because, like, he's from the Pacific Northwest and, you know, and, and I was, like, from Canada. And, and yeah. Rebecca was from Virginia, or is from West Virginia, but, like, I don't know. She was like into Radiohead, and so we were all kind yeah. of felt like misfits. And um, yeah, yeah, and and uh, so I don't know. I guess to answer your question, like I feel like I draw from a lot of different places. I would love to be like a, a, you know I would love to be a very technical player. Like I think I could definitely spend more time just like practicing. um yeah i think if if i had one wish for my playing it would just be to kind of like to just like hammer some of the more technical stuff a little Mm. bit more so that i can play it some of the notier tunes like i I really want to learn how to play garfield's blackberry blossom and yes um just like you know some of the stuff that's that takes a little more time and emphasis i've sort of like grown away from that as as i've pursued songwriting more you're talking about like finding your place and being a misfit and i've i've experienced a fair amount of um in the old time community there's a lot of pretension and sort of appeals to authority and appeal to tradition and authenticity and it can get really messy um, and then there's all of this like authenticity coding <laughs> that happens. And it's, it's really interesting, uh, anthropologically, maybe from an outside perspective, but when you're in it, it can feel, uh, st- stressful. And I'm wondering <laughs> if you could speak to that at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Um, oh man, Cameron, I, I, so I'm biracial, um, and for people that can't see me and uh so i've just like struggled along for a long time i just really identify with what you're saying like i struggled for mm. a long time of uh feeling like i don't belong mm. in any particular place or with any particular group of people and so i think like playing banjo i 
chastised myself a lot as a teenager and I didn't I didn't tell many of my friends that I played um because uh it was like a white instrument like it was coded Holy white shit. yeah and like yeah I, and uh I don't know and and like learning I guess that that is like a dia- diasporic instrument felt good like it felt like oh hmm. this explains why I like this playing this thing and why this feels so comfortable Um, when did that information make its way to you? Kind of in bits, like, uh, the Carolina chocolate drops, seeing them play, I had never seen another black person play the banjo. So I was, I must've been in my like 15 or 16. So I've been playing for three or four years, but I hadn't seen any black people play. Um, and they came on the scene and like, people were really excited about them Mm. and they were talking about like, the black, you know, f- f- fiddle traditions of North Carolina, which like, I just didn't know anything about that. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was just, it was very, it's like, I think growing up playing felt very lonely, like ran and um, she's, she had a, this speech and she said for a long time, she felt like the raisin in the oatmeal. And like, I, oh I, my God. I kind of like identify, you know, we were like, oh, I don't really belong here. And like, I'm just going to, I'm going to let everybody know that I know that I don't belong here so that nobody can tell me that I don't belong here, you know? Yeah. And, and just living with this like constant, just like very self-deprecating, self-effacing, um, self, um, kind of self-hating like kind of presence and it took me like until the end of college i think for to to sort of feel like you know what like fuck it like i who cares like can we all like who cares like i'm i'm not i'm not locking anybody else out i'm i'm just like I'm just like being in this space. Like I, I'm not doing anything to hurt anybody, whatever. Like I am so done with this, like this conversation. And I absolutely want to acknowledge, you know, that I am not Appalachian born and raised. However, like, I just don't want to use that as like a stick to beat myself with. Like, yeah. <laughs> every you know like i don't i'm i'm curious about your thoughts on that or just like on belonging and all that you know i've been thinking about that a lot too because i'm also from the pacific northwest like scotty i was raised in portland and the surrounding area and um you know i think there's a fair amount of just sort of privilege uh and unearned confidence that got me through a lot of barriers to entry. Um, just a lot of inserting myself into, into situations, uh, and, um, not learning that I was embarrassing myself until later, uh, (laughs) including on this show. Um, and so I think a lot of my ability to thrive in this community has been because of that kind of privilege. And then it didn't, I didn't start really analyzing like my sort of imposter syndrome until later. I would say until I really started feeling connected to the music and wanting to dive deeper and then kind of running into some barriers. And also honestly, uh, having, 
having some conflict with specifically white Southern people um, and being accused of being a colonizer and things like that. Uh, And then having to like think a little bit more critically about Mm. my role in that. And I think it's been really good. Not all of those arguments have been good faith Mm -hmm. that (laughs) not all of those accusations have been leveled against me in good faith. However, they have all helped me grow and think about how I want to take up space or Mm -hmm. give up space and things like that. And has led me to a place of, of of like working through my guilt in as responsible a way as possible. And, um, not going through the world, like, um, (laughs) looking to be spanked. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to our conversation earlier. Uh, yeah. And that goes for um, being a white banjo player uh, and also being a, a, a non-Appalachian um, old time musician who mm-hmm. spends a lot of my time playing um, music from the American South. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And uh, I think ultimately just realizing that like the ownership <laughs> Ownership in these things is really hairy, just period. Um, although I accept, I don't think the ownership of like, you know, who gets to play the banjo is that complicated in terms of like black ownership of the banjo. I feel very confident and just like, that's not complicated. That just is black people get to do whatever mm-hmm. and uh, they want on the banjo. And I'm very willing to um, uh, bully white people out who who don't uh, don't make a, a space for that. Um, and I think that white banjo players should pay reparations to to black people in general, and especially to people who are interested in in participating in the music. Uh, so I feel pretty confident about that. But all the other ownership stuff, it's just like I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's. I think it's good. I, I'm trying to like have like a humble attitude, but um, and to know to know my place, taking ownership in the space that I'm actually taking up, and um, and being a good listener. I guess mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel complicated about it too. To answer your question, <laughs> thanks for asking me. <laughs> I wasn't ready to be interviewed. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that I think in in this playing old time like it's kind of like a constant hum of like conversation that mm. that I think on some levels like should be had, you know, I can, I can absolutely empathize with Appalachian people who are from Appalachia f- feeling like their culture is like being taken absolutely by, by Northerners slash Westerners slash people who are not from the area. And like, having like lived there for four years like that was a pretty constant conversation and i'm i'm glad that it that it was kept alive and Mm. you know i certainly had many long conversations with people about it appalachian and non-appalachian and yeah i yeah i think i think where i finally the, the the conclusion that i finally came to was was like similar where i was like you know what like i spent so much of my life thinking that that this banjo was not only a southern instrument but a white instrument and that i had no right to be playing it and so 
like like maybe this is maybe like the diaspora like this diasporic instrument like found its way back to me Hmm. and you know justin robinson in in an interview he said he was like i just really like how the banjo sounds and and that's always been how how i felt about it i'm quoting Hmm. justin and and i feel the same way of just like i've just always loved how it sounds and yeah I'm really hoping that more black people, that the banjo can find its way back into the hands of more black people because if anyone should be playing that instrument, it's black people. (laughs) And and I I hope that it, yeah, that it feels like it was lost for a long time. And that that's what I like about it is that maybe it's finding its way back. I don't know. I hope so too. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's do one more tune and then we can talk about uh, where people can go to buy your music and keep up to date with whatever your musical life looks like these days (laughs) in these times. (laughs) Because maybe it isn't the same as it used to be. And maybe there are new ways that people need to adapt to keep up with you. (laughs) Maybe, hypothetically. Maybe, perhaps. Yeah. Okay, um, I'm going to play a song called Skating on the Harbor Front. Um, and this is a song that was written, uh, a song, a tune that was written by Chris Cool, who's a Aww. Canadian banjo player. <laughs> I love this tune. cool so great (laughs) good human (laughs) yeah i still haven't met him i just i've heard a lot of his music such a great banjo player oh yeah um he's a he's a great person as well very funny very like dry sardonic humor that is that is awesome um wow i feel like 
I should have you on again just to like talk all about Canada old time music scene because uh, I, I, I want to learn more about that. But we only have one tune left, and I I think we just we should talk about where do people go to stay up to date with everything you're doing. Um, so people can go to my website. It's www.kayacater.com. And uh, on my website, I have uh, songs for download. Um, my CD is available, vinyl available, um, hopefully t-shirts soon as well. So uh, yeah, people can head to my website for that. And then I'm on all of the socials, um, Great. Instagram, TikTok? Facebook. Not yet. Okay. Not yet. <laughs> I don't know I don't how know. many banjo TikToks are out there. I know. I'm curious too. Yeah. Always. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where folks can find me. Um, yeah. And also, if you're uh, if you're into uh, what you're hearing, please sign up for my mailing list because I send out a few a year. I won't spam you or anything. But okay, that's also on your website. Yeah. Sign up. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this and I wasn't necessarily like <laughs> planning on having like a super intense conversation about like identity and race with you like I thought that it like might come up a little bit but uh thank you for going there um I know I'm I'm talking about like doing emotional labor and you're like doing it now uh <laughs> like you know doing this interview and I don't I I want to say thank you for for taking your time to do this and play your music and uh, wade into those waters. Thank you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, um, thanks for just like hanging and listening. Yeah. It's a delight. <laughs> what do you want to do for the last tune? Um, I'm going to play my own song for the last tune. Uh, mm. This is a song called nine pin. Um, yes. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna sing it for you. And uh, it was uh, I wrote it while I was in West Virginia. Uh, it sort of came to me uh, after I went to a square dance, and in uh, some square dance formations, there's this uh, dance called the nine pin, hmm. um, where you have like eight people, four couples, and then you have a ninth person in the in the middle. Wow. Yeah, and so it's kind of like musical chairs where one person is always like in the in the middle, like the person who fails to find like another yeah. human to dance with. <laughs> um yeah, and so I just sort of like that was lodged in my brain and I wrote from that place. This is probably one of the most like lyrically satisfying choruses uh <laughs> that I've ever heard before. It's just kind of so perfect. <laughs> I'm glad you're playing this one to end Thank us. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Kaya.
I'm soft and heavy as the night I'm soft and heavy as the night And I've drowned the leagues of thirty men I've borne the wrath of each of them Oh sugar cane and sugar blood And the evils of the setting sun The evils of the setting sun I'll be your
Visit Kaya Cater's website at kayacater.com to buy her albums and sign up for her mailing list. And make sure to like and follow her on Facebook and Instagram so you can be the first to hear about our future projects. Support Get Up in the Cool at patreon.com slash getupinthecool. And don't forget about the raffle for the sticker with original Get Up in the Cool art from Howard Rains. All you need to do to enter is sign up at the Patreon or raise your pledge amount if you're already a patron. Thanks for supporting the show. You can order a mask, t-shirt, bag, sticker, or phone case at Get Up in the Cool's merch store. Make sure to like and follow Get Up in the Cool on Facebook so you can see the video I posted from this episode and share it with the world. Visit pitchforkbanjo.com for my instructional banjo series. Check out my other podcast, Think Outside the Box Set, available in all the same places as Get Up in the Cool. And again, everything I just mentioned is linked in the show notes for this episode in your podcast app. That's all for now, friends. Thanks for listening. Come back same time next week to get up in the cool. <laughs>